Who talks first? You talk first. I talk first. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Han Talks First. I'm your host, Han, and this is the podcast you're looking for. This is a Star Wars show where we talk about the latest and greatest in Star Wars. And like I told you last week, we are joined by a special guest. His name is Cameron Pasha. He is a Hollywood screenwriter, director, producer, and also a novelist. And he's joining us today to talk about screenwriting and the process of the Star Wars films. Uh, for those of you that are new here, for the past three weeks, we started a new series called The Making Of. We talked about the making of A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi scripts and George Lucas's writing process. So to end that series, we decided we'd bring in a professional to give us their opinions and thoughts and how it all works and how you craft a good story. And Cameron Pasha was nice enough to come on and let me ask him a couple questions and talk some Star Wars today. So I hope you're excited. I hope you enjoy our talk we had. It was a great conversation. If you're new here, please consider subscribing and checking out those other videos that are on the channel. And you can watch the making of the original trilogy as well. And check out the podcast. New episodes coming up twice a week here talking about Star Wars. And uh, like the video. You know, if you're if you're new or you're just stopping by, it helps out so much and leave your thoughts in the comment section below. So without further ado, let's jump into the screenwriting process and our interview with Cameron Pasha. Enjoy. So we are welcoming to the show today a Hollywood screenwriter, director, producer and novelist. He has worked on projects like Nikita, Bionic Woman, Sleeper Cell, Kings and a lot more, which we'll talk about later. The drama Sleeper Cell, uh, fun fact, was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Miniseries in 2005, in addition also for an Emmy in 2006. And we're happy to have him join us today to talk about screenwriting, what it takes to craft a great story. And he could probably tell you a lot more about him better than I ever could. So let's welcome him to the show, Mr. Cameron Pasha. Welcome to Han Talks First. How are you today? I'm I'm great and thank you. I'm honored to be on your show and uh, it's all it's always exciting to to meet new people. I don't think we've really interacted before, so I'm I'm delighted to be participating in the podcast and uh, and hopefully it adds value to your audience. I agree. I think uh, the listeners are going to have a lot of great things to hear from us today. And yes, we haven't spoken before. This is our first time. I'm very honored and humbled to meet you. And uh, before we dive into the Star Wars and screenwriting and stuff like that. Um, tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself more than I, I could. Uh, you're from Pakistan, right? Maybe a little bit about your history and stuff like that. So I was born in Pakistan. I immigrated to the U.S. when I was three years old. Uh, and so I've, I'm American. I've been here you know, my entire life. Uh, yeah, I was a journalist in New York for a bit. And then I went to law school, business school. So I got a bunch of degrees and I was kind of bored with all that. And so it was in an accounting class in, in, in the MBA program that I wrote my first screenplay. It was like a teen horror movie. Similarly, Scream, Scream was big at the time. And so it was like in that vein of, you know, the, the pretty girl runs up the stairs while the guy with the knife chases her, right? And so that was the kind, and that script, I graduated, I was working at a law firm in New York and I sent that script out. And to my complete surprise, I actually, an agent wanted to represent me and then put me in touch with some people. And I sold my first couple of scripts to Paramount. And I was like, oh my God, I can do this professionally. And so I moved to LA and I've been doing this now, April, it will be 20 years. I've been a professional screenwriter and you've mentioned some of my credits and, uh, yeah, I mean, this it's it's been an interesting journey, and uh, and now the whole all of Hollywood is changing in, in ways I didn't expect. Uh, but it's going to be fun. That's fascinating. Twenty years. That's that's impressive. That's really great. There was one mention that I I didn't mention in the intro because I wanted to single it out by mm -hmm. itself. But your your short film uh, that you directed and wrote called Miriam. Am I saying that correctly? Miriam. Yes. Um, that I have seen on your YouTube page, and that is a great short film i love the tone specifically and i don't know you want to talk a little bit about that since that's something people can access a little bit more easily sure sure if anyone wants to go see it i have a youtube channel there's not much on it i just put i just put uh my creative work on it so there's a couple of short films on there uh and the youtube channel is my name cameron pasha 72 so k-a-m-r-a-n-p-a-s-h-a-7-2 and you can find it there the short film is called miriam uh and it's an unusual film it's, it's a 20 minute short film that i wanted to do i want you know one of my career intentions is to be a, a, a professional director. So I'm a professional screenwriter and a novelist. I've already established credentials in that area. Uh, I've not yet made 
professional directing got a major film released or anything like that. So that's hopefully in, in, in the journey forward. But to have that done, you have to have samples of your directing ability. And so I, I wrote and directed this short film, Miriam, which is a bit unusual. It is set in the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community. Uh, and it's, that's interesting because I actually grew up in, in a Hasidic neighborhood in Brooklyn. And so I was this one Muslim guy living amongst the Hasidim. And so I always had a fascinating relationship with that community. And so it's a, it's a film set in the, in the Hasidic community, but it's, uh, it's unusual because it's a, bit of, it's a supernatural thriller. And in many ways, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's inspired in some ways by Rosemary's Baby, right? And so uh, th that I wanted to do sort of an unusual thing we've never seen before. Uh, and, uh, and I put that out there and it won some awards and got me some attention and I'm very proud of it. You know, looking back, it was always like, I could have done that differently if I had more resources or I've learned more about the directing craft, but you know, people generally like the film. And I think it's, it's a, it's a solid short film that I'm proud of. It is. And, uh, honestly, I've heard you speak on other YouTube channels before, but that, that short film that I checked out after hearing you know, you talk a little bit was actually what really convinced me to want to talk to you. It, it showed that you're definitely an intellectual thinker and um, a, a very good at screenwriting and telling a story. And it goes, it ties into what our theme has been for the past couple of weeks. Our listeners know, and I told you a little bit, but for the past three weeks, we've been talking about A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, the original trilogy of Star Wars and breaking down the scripts, George Lucas's writing process, Lawrence Kasdan's writing process, all that kind of stuff, really getting deep into that making of. And so what you're here to help us understand today is a little bit more about what it takes to be a screenwriter. Maybe there's some people listening who are aspiring screenwriters out there or just telling a story in general. For me, being a podcaster, I got to tell a story every week. I'm also a musician. Mm -hmm. a I see the guitar of... in the background. I love it. Yeah, there we go. And yeah, so I'm just, this conversation can go many different ways today. But the first thing I ask my guests every time they come on my show is what is their Star Wars story? Now, this can be your favorite movie, how you first got introduced to it, a favorite memory, anything like that. So Cameron, what is your Star Wars story? Well, my Star Wars story, I mean, I was a fan like everyone of my generation, uh, just knowing of it culturally, but I'd never, I'd seen the original movies basically on television at the time when they were released on television in the early 80s, right? Uh, and then the first uh, Star Wars movie that I actually saw in a theater was Return of the Jedi. So that's my memory of actually going to see, and I had already, you know, I had this, I was already a fan just from what I knew of it, from having watched sort of the edited for television versions, and I had the the Empire Strikes Back comic book, which really inspired me as a kid. I, would, I read it probably a thousand times and the, and the images in that really stuck with me. Uh, and I had my little toys, I had my Luke Skywalker toy and, and all of that. And I would make out little movies. And this is all before having actually seen the film in the theater, right? Uh, that's how much it had a cultural impact in the late 70s, early 80s. But finally I did, it, it, it was 1982, I believe, uh, when Return of the Jedi came out. And, uh, and when, that happened and my dad who didn't really know anything about these star wars movies didn't really understand it he didn't understand this lightsaber thing that i was that i was you know running around in my room with but uh he took us to it and it, it was fascinating because number one the movie started with a glitch we started in we're sitting there near the opening scene is essentially vader shuttle arrives right uh on on the on the uh, on the star destroyer and as we're sitting i'm like so excited i've watched the opening crawl and vader's you know shuttle's arriving and suddenly I'm watching in this in this theater in Brooklyn with hundreds of kids. This film starts burning right in front of us, like the film stock. So no we're way. watching a hole burning on the screen as the film stock burned right in front of us. Oh my gosh. So literally a minute into the movie, I'm watching what's happening here, and suddenly the entire screen goes black as the film stock burned on the projector. No way. And so we're like, what? And so the, the theater asked us all to step out. And they essentially had to get another, I don't know where they got it from, maybe a, a sister theater, but we had to wait an hour outside while they replaced the film stock of Return of the Jedi. And then we all came back wow. in and we watched it. And, and I have to say, it was the most thrilling experience of my young life to see that in a theater. Uh, you know, I can still remember during the, uh, during the speeder chase in, in, on Endor, my heart, I can remember how my heart was pounding wildly because you're sitting there, I mean, I'm what, I'm, I'm like a 12-year-old kid, right? Uh, at that time, I'm probably a 10-year-old kid. I'm a 10-year-old kid. I'm sitting there and this is a massive screen and you're watching them going at this incredible speed with trees flying at you. And I mean, it was, it, 
my my heart was in my throat. I was so overwhelmed. And then the whole thing was so emotionally fulfilling. And that final moment when uh, when Vader turns against the Emperor and picks him up and throws him into the reactor core, I remember the entire audience just going utterly wild. I mean, I couldn't hear the movie anymore because everyone was screaming. Everyone was just screaming, and I was jumping up and down in my seat. And then, of course, the moment Vader's mask finally comes off, and you're like, "Oh my God!" You know, this is very powerful. And that's that that stayed with me. I remember seeing that Vader's face in my dreams or nightmares, as they were, for for many days after that, because it stayed with me. And I and I remember thinking as a child, "So what happened to him? How did he look like that?" I mean, his face is all deeply scarred. We don't know the story, right? And then it would be another ten years before the prequels would come out, and we would learn the story. Uh, but yeah, so that's my, I hope that, that that's insightful because it, what it did was yes. it, that fired my imagination and I'm a screenwriter today because of Star Wars. That's why it's such an important franchise for me because I would tell movies with my action figures beginning, middle, and end. I learned how to do it through Star Wars. Amazing. Interesting story. What's the most interesting is actually when you said about they had to replace the film stock because the one was burning. It's really, really strange coincidence. I had a guest on my show last year, uh, I believe it was Brian Kessinger, he is a, a Lucasfilm artist and a Marvel artist for uh, digital uh, comics and stuff like that. And he actually said the first time he saw a Star Wars movie was also Return of the Jedi. And he had a very similar experience. It started and then the film broke or the projector broke or something like that. Maybe he was in my theater. A lot of filmmakers are, and he's an artist. A lot of them come from Brooklyn. Brooklyn creates them, right? It would be amazing if he was actually in the theater because how common could that have been? Right, right, exactly. That's so crazy. That's yeah. amazing. What's wow. funny is um, Return of the Jedi was my first movie I saw as well for Star Wars. Um, of course, at that time, it was the late 90s. It was on VHS, but it, it still meant a lot to me. And then um, the first one I saw in theaters was The Phantom Menace. Mm -hmm. It's very vague on my memory of it, but I do remember, as you were saying, having the action figures. I had a Jar Jar Binks and a Darth Vader. They went with me everywhere I went, like regardless of how silly some of the characters well, well, are. What the amazing thing is this. What I've learned is, you know, I was initially disappointed with episode one with Phantom Menace. I, I stood in line. I was in college. I was in New Hampshire. And I, I stood in a long line to see that that night. And I was disappointed by it. I, but looking back, it's, it's a good Star Wars movie. I mean, certainly compared to where we've gone since then. And, uh, and there are moments in there that are incredible. I mean, I still think the Duel of the Fates is one of the best sort of, you know, lightsaber battles I've ever seen in, in the franchise at any level. It's just three I guys. Agree. And, it, and, it, and it, it pulls you in even more than the hundreds of people, you know, fighting on, uh, on you know, in, in, in Attack of the Clones. So, and the thing that really touched me is I talked to other members of, you know, people who are known in, on YouTube, one of the fandom menace, a good friend of mine, Abu Nas, who's a prominent YouTuber. Uh, he told me that he wasn't that initially impressed with uh, with Phantom Menace, but he took his his daughter to see it, and his daughter was blown away and loved Jar Jar Binks, and she had the figure, and she wouldn't let the figure go. And then I realized <laughs> that Lucas understood kids; he always understood kids, and he, Jar Jar Binks worked for that generation. It did. I agree, and that that leads me to one of our first questions I have for you is, you know, uh, one of our themes of the Han Talks first show is to kind of figure out what makes Star Wars iconic. And it's a fun question because there's many different answers. And one of them, I think, could be the fact that it is, you know, crafted for children, um, not just just children, but, you know, that children for the inside of all of us. It's the universal exactly. child. Yeah, exactly. And are, are there any other features to that uh, it doesn't have to be you know, the children aspect, but how Star Wars is iconic for a, a mass group of, of people and audiences. Yeah, It's because Star Wars perfectly follows uh, what Aristotle said in On Poetics. If you go back, you know, the original story structure that we think of as modern storytelling, the three-act structure was first described by Aristotle, you know, 2,300 years ago in a book that you can get in Barnes and Nobles today on poetics, right? Which is still the best book on screenwriting 2,300 years later on any kind of storytelling. And it follows that structure perfectly. It understands, you know, Aristotle laid out the, the hero's arc and, and, the, and the hero's journey. These are things that we've talked about in the modern term, but these have been laid out by the Greek philosophers because they're archetypal. And that's what Star Wars is. Star Wars is an archetype. Star Wars is an archetype in the way that the Odyssey and the Iliad are archetypes, right? It's part of universal consciousness. It's part of universal storytelling. Uh, and that is why it works. That is why people will be watching the original trilogy 200 years from now. 
when technology may be more advanced than we can imagine, maybe even more advanced than what is being portrayed on, on, in those movies. And they'll still get it in the same way that we can watch the Greek, read the Greek myths and, and watch them you know, in movies or on plays, and they still move us. It's not about the technology. It's about the human archetypal storytelling. I totally agree. And speaking of uh, formatting of stories um, and the way to tell a story, uh, it's, it's been talked about many times that George Lucas took from uh, Joseph Campbell, uh, the hero's journey. And my favorite Star Wars movie is A New Hope. Uh, for mm-hmm. some reason, that one sits with me. That's the one I can watch over and over and over back to Because back. it's a standalone hero's journey. If, if, they, if you never made anything else, that movie's enough. And it's a standalone hero's journey. You know, Empire Strikes Back is not a standalone hero's journey because it ends on a cliffhanger, right? You need the right. Return of the Jedi to resolve it. Uh, otherwise, it's unfulfilling. And so, uh, and so that is why New Hope is perfectly served the purpose. It's the only one in the entire franchise that is standalone. Yeah, that one, every, every single scene, I, I believe, moves that, moves that story forward. And there's really, even the slow scenes, it has something that is, includes key plot points, you know, even... Obi-Wan talking to Luke. It's, it's a slower moment, but it's, it's important. But, and it's, and I was watching a YouTube recut of that scene uh, of, of Alec Guinness talking about, you know, your father was a friend, right? And they, they just played over scenes from the, from, the sequel, uh, from the prequel trilogy, I'm sorry, from the prequel trilogy, where you see young Anakin and young Obi-Wan and their relationship. And it's amazing what an incredible actor Alec was, you know, because he yes. hasn't even told what this story is, this backstory. But his face, in a period of um, maybe less than 30 seconds of story time, his face tells the entire journey of that relationship. And when you put it up against movies that are made 20 years later, right, uh, that show that journey, he captured it all on his face. I mean, he was truly one of the great actors of all time. Definitely. I'm glad you pointed that, that, that out. That's one of my favorite scenes is when, you know, the timing of his performance, when he kind of you know, takes a moment and none of them are talking to each other, just sitting in silence. But you can see on his face replaying all those moments they've had in the past. And it, it tells the story for itself. And it's, it's beautiful. And I love that. And, one, and the root of that is at that point, as far as Alec knows, there's no Darth Vader is the father of Luke Skywalker. And yet it's already on his face. Yeah. It's, and even when he says, what happened to my father, his reaction he's lying. <laughs> whatever it is, right. whatever the story is, he's not telling the whole story. And Alec, as an actor, understood there's more to this relationship than George has put out of the script. Now, do you think that context was given to him at the time by George, or George had no idea at this point? I mean, the, the stories I've heard is George was still trying to figure out the relationship. You know, it's interesting because the, the story that I understand is that he had written a treatment for the first three movies before he actually wrote that. So he must have had some understanding of Darth Vader's journey, and yet the official story is that he came up with the revelation of Vader as a father while writing Empire Strikes Back or, or, or producing it. Uh, I, I don't know, Mr. Lucas, I don't know which version is true. Uh, I definitely think Alec is just a great actor, and I think that he understood that this moment where, you, you know, he knows his whole history of this kid's father, and there's clearly some kind of uh, guilt or shame uh, on his face, the way he plays it, he's, he figures out uh, the, whatever backstory, because, you know, actors do that. Good actors will create backstories for themselves. I and mean, actors I've worked with will come to me before a scene with an entire notebook filled with a backstory that I didn't come up with, right? But that helps them mold a scene. So whatever relationship he came up with ended up being perfect. Uh, 100% agree. And it shows. Uh, we, we miss Sir Alec uh, a whole lot. But um Ewan McGregor, uh, real quick uh, thoughts on him portraying Alec, kind of taking that character, making it his own, but still paying homage to the original. Do you are you a fan of Ewan's work? Oh, absolutely, and I think he was the absolute perfect actor for that role. Uh, you know, he he honored the original uh, character. You can see that character's journey into the older man he's going to become over the course of Ewan's portrayal over several movies. That's why people are excited about the idea of someday seeing Ewan McGregor return as Obi-Wan, because we see him as a natural progression to the Alec Guinness character, right? And we, we, yeah. we, we see him as that. And he is, he is a superb actor. And you can tell he loves Star Wars. You can tell that he is a fan in the same way that Jean Favreau is a fan. You know, I read an interview who said when he watched his first, uh, the first cuts that Lucas showed him of uh, Phantom Menace and he's swinging the lightsaber. He's like, I'm swinging a lightsaber. <laughs> I've wanted to do this since I was five years old. I'm swinging a lightsaber. <laughs> And that would be all of us. Yeah. And it's performances from the heart. Yeah, definitely. So it's often forgotten about 
uh, amongst many of the star current Star Wars fans, like today's today's time, is that you know the original Star Wars was nominated by the uh, Academy Awards, uh, George Lucas, in 1978 for Best Original Screenplay for Star Wars, mm -hmm. and so first uh, in win. our conversation, he didn't win if I remember correctly. He lost to Woody Allen. Okay, uh, Annie Hall, I think, is what what won. So I kind of want to start with A New Hope and more importantly, talking about how different this, this story was at the time and more importantly, how it kind of broke some screenwriting rules that were of tradition at that time and, you know, introduced new ideas and ways of storytelling. Even if the original script didn't match the outline that the final edit came into, I still think there's some interesting things that we could talk about there. And the first one that I want to bring up is you know, the fact that Luke Skywalker isn't introduced until 15 minutes into this movie, and he's our main character. He's the protagonist, which is kind of an interesting, interesting take on a movie. You know, it's, it starts by setting up the world, which I think is a very interesting approach. Yeah. And but usually you would see that character introduced early so that the audiences can bond with it and, you know, appreciate their journey moving forward. So what are your thoughts on on that? And do you think that itself introducing this? character later on in the story has influenced any other stories going forward? Well, what's interesting is I've, I've read this and I believe this to be true, that Lucas actually saw R2-D2 and C-3PO as the, the what, what the movie's about, right? It's essentially they're the, they're the audience. And so th there's a reason that the movie starts with them, right? I mean, we, before we even see Princess Leia, we, we, we see, we see Streepio, right? You know, and then yeah. we see Leia, you know, putting the, putting the plans into, into R2. So they, they are the observers. They, you know, because he was, he was, he's fascinated by that. In some ways he's fascinated by machines more than he is by human beings. And that's, that's interesting about who George Lucas is, uh, you know, and because of that, it actually established something that this is not actually about even Luke Skywalker. Definitely, it is a Luke's the Skywalker saga, but it's about a galaxy, you know, far, far away, and and it's about all these people trapped in a much bigger situation, which is a war, a Star Wars, right? And and that's that's why I think it was the right storytelling move. And once you because in that case you establish what the universe was and the stakes of the universe, and then you can begin the hero's journey because we're creating a whole new. Uh, reality, a galaxy that we don't know and its rules. So, so if you had started off with Luke Skywalker uh, on the, uh, you know, on, on the, on the moisture farm, I don't know that people would stuck around in the theater for more than 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. And so that's something you have to, it's something I do in my screenwriting is to know uh, where and when to put in backstory. You know, for example, my, um, you know, my very first, uh, well, one of my very first scripts, which ended up becoming one of my novels, I wrote a script on the Crusades uh, called Shadow of the Swords, and I eventually novelized and got it published. But that story begins, um, the story is about Saladin, the Muslim king versus Richard the Lionheart in the Third Crusade, right? Uh, but the story actually begins with the First Crusade. It starts off essentially with a prologue of the First Crusade when the Crusaders take Jerusalem, and then it moves forward to Saladin now facing the Crusader army 90 years later, right? And trying to retake Jerusalem. Uh, but that was necessary because you don't know the context of what Saladin is doing unless you see the historical event of the First Crusade. You don't you just don't understand it. And, right. uh, and so that that's necessary in many contexts when you're trying to create a larger universe. I think it's a smart thing to do. Where can people find your book? Uh, my book, uh, Shadow of the Swords, is available on Amazon and barnesandnobles.com. Uh, and again, they, they can look me up. I have an amazon.com uh, author's page, Cameron Pasha, and you know, Shadow of the Swords is there. That's on the Crusades. Uh, and I have a, another novel called Mother of the Believers, which is another historical epic. It's about the birth of Islam from the idea, from the point of view of the prophet's wife, Aisha, who's a very controversial figure. And so that's an epic novel told from a woman's point of view. And, uh, and so both of very them cool. have done well. Yeah, they're, they're publishers, Simon & Schuster, and they're available, and I hope people read them. People, the great thing I've done is now that I've become a little bit of someone speaking on YouTube and podcasts in the last year, uh, people are out there buying my books that, you know, <laughs> you know, that never heard of them. And so that's a nice thing. That's fantastic. Uh, for the listeners, I will leave some links below. So please check them out. If you are interested in checking out some of uh, Cameron Pasha's work, um, you said something. Um, it sounds like when you're writing, you take a lot of your own, you know, personal background and, you know, whether it's uh, personal views, morals, or um, things like that into your work. Uh, how often do you find yourself drawing inspiration from your own history, even if you're writing about something completely different? Well, I think that the best stories that I've written are the ones where my own character, including my own character flaws, are reflected in the story and reflected in the characters, right? Uh, and 
you know, that's when it becomes very personal. People can feel that. And, and one of the things that I try to do, especially when I say talk about character flaws, is that it's a way for you to process who you are. Storytelling can be a way to process who you are in, in the most honest and naked way because you're making it about somebody else. Uh, and that's why it's very, you know, I was once in a, in a, a you know, screenwriting type seminar where, where a fellow writer said, you know, I hate writing the villains. I was like, why do you hate writing the villains? I love my villains because the villains are me, right? I, because the, I want to I explore the damage that made them villains, right? Even in my Crusades novel, uh, Richard the Lionheart is not the hero of the story, but I explore the, the deep pathologies within him and his relationship with his father that turned him into the man that he historically was, even though sort of he's been mythologized in Western, uh, his, Western legend as being this great man, man of Robin Hood, when in reality, Western history and crusader history doesn't portray him as a great guy. And, uh, and so I explored that. But in, in exploring Richard's relationship with his father, I got to explore my own family relationships and probably heal some stuff. That's what I think a good storyteller has to do is, is, to, is to look within themselves nakedly and put that onto the page. I agree. That's very interesting. Thank you for sharing all that kind of stuff. Uh, I think George Lucas does that as well, very similarly. You know, he brings in ideas of uh, things like politics, of course. And uh, of course, uh, I believe he sees himself mostly in Luke Skywalker, that sense of wanting to, to get away. Um, but one very interesting thing about A New Hope that uh, I often, you know, wonder about is, you know, Luke Skywalker doesn't really have a, a central goal in mind at the beginning of the movie and it often changes as the movie progresses you know at first he just wants to leave he wants to yeah. get off Tatooine mm-hmm. he also wants to be a pilot he also wants to know more about his father and eventually just ends up becoming uh, you know the hero of the galaxy destroying the Death Star and you know taking on that that mm-hmm. title so h- how do you think what separates the original Star Wars uh, with Luke not having a central goal, and but we can still follow a story, and it and it's coherent and interesting at the same time. Well, I mean, because Luke's goal, it's hard for him to put into words. That's why he's he he flits around what his goal is. His goal is ultimately to find his purpose. Right? He doesn't feel his purpose is to be a moisture farmer like it, you know, like you know, you know Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru, right? He's felt within him, and we would later discover that he was born into a greater lineage and a greater destiny. But he's felt within him the sense of purpose that is being thwarted. And so, but he doesn't know his lineage. All he knows is something is wrong. The person yes. he is doesn't fit into this environment, doesn't belong there. And I think all of us have felt that in some place. And so the journey he goes on allows him to learn the truths about his own life and then find a purpose, right? Uh, yeah. and, and that's why it's such a brilliant arc. I mean, at the end, when he throws the lightsaber away, it, it, he he finds his, pur- his purpose is to save his father. His purpose is to save his father. Uh, and that was his purpose from the moment he was born in, in, within the universe that George Lucas had created. He would be the salvation of this this character. Uh, and so that that's, it wasn't even to blow up the Death Star. It wasn't even to become a Jedi. His purpose was to save his father. His purpose was to inspire his father to become a good person. That's all. So you, you think know. during Empire, he, he's also still trying to find his purpose? Yeah. Again, his purpose is misguided. He thinks his purpose is to become a Jedi. He thinks his purpose oh, is right. to avenge his father, right? Which is what he's doing when he faces Vader, you know, because it, think about this way. He, there's a moment that we that we never talk about, but it's there. It's, it's an Empire where he sees Leia. She's been taken away. By, uh, she's been taken away. And she goes, it's a trap, but he keeps going. He's keeps he should be trying to find Leia. And if the purpose of him being there was to save Han and Leia, he should have continued down that path. Instead, he fall his purpose in his heart was to confront Vader. Saving Han and Leia is what he rationalized to himself. That's what Yoda knew about him, is that he was so quick to run away because this is what he thought his purpose was. His purpose was revenge on for his, the man who killed his father, as he thought. And so that's, that explains, when you understand that, then you understand why he doesn't win that battle because he didn't come from a, a clean place that he thought he was coming for. I've got to save my friends when he had this thing within him. And then the only way to clean him of that was to reveal the truth of who his father was. Right, definitely. One, one thing about uh, about empire and and the way it tells its story um i had a quote i I lost it in my notes here uh sorry for the listeners but there was a a writer who 
uh, documents the making of Star Wars movies. And uh, I believe it may have been Alan Dean Foster. That could be wrong. I'm not entirely sure. But they did say that, you know, uh, the movie Empire Strikes Back, uh, because, you know, the main characters are sent on separate adventures with no clear central goal, for all intents and purposes, this movie should not have worked because of how it's formatted but yet it still does and empire is the only one that could have done it this way and i never thought about that before and it also makes me think how how important darth vader is to that story and he kind of kind of holds all those stories together and and drives the story forward and i guess becomes a main character himself because he has a very clear goal that it's really just to to get luke to get luke back yeah, right. I mean, to, to get back everything that was taken from him, he blames he blames his life for having been taken from him. He blames Obi Wan, and in his heart, he blames the Emperor too. He he feels that he's been cheated out of his destiny. He was born to be the chosen one, right? He was born to be the the savior of the galaxy, which he interpreted as the ruler of the galaxy, and all of that is taken away from him. He's left, you know, catastrophically injured, kept alive by machines. The Emperor can kill him anytime. He once had the power to kill the Emperor. He no longer does without sacrificing himself, right? And so, you know, when he was young Anakin, he could probably, after he finished off Obi-Wan, his goal was probably go back to the uh, to, to, to face Palpatine and kill him. In fact, he says that's what he's going to do to Padme. So, you know, when if we understand that this story has always was always about Anakin Skywalker, then actually even the opening scene that we talked about in uh, in A New Hope makes sense because you see Vader first. Right? Yes, definitely. You know, Darth Vader. So you see Vader first. Uh, you know, he when he, it's actually right after the you see the droids, and then Vader emerges and breathes. Right, and he looks at all the dead bodies and moves forward. So uh, it's stories about him. I, I agree. Uh, Vader's such a such a great character with so many you know things that factor into that the mm-hmm. the writing, the the voice, the performance, everything. Um, but one thing about when Empire came out, a lot of movies did try and you know replicate that same format of storytelling uh they even tried that again in the last jedi separate the characters and try to make a very dramatic twist filled story but a lot of the times it doesn't work and well, the, the curious... is, you know i've been very critical of the last jedi and now will continue to be so both from where it fits within the, the star wars mythology and both as a as a script I, I don't believe it is a good script objectively and i don't think it ever will be there's people say, well, 20 years from now, it's misunderstood 20 years from now. No, because it violates all the archetypal um, methods of storytelling. And so that's a conversation we, we can't have. But yeah, it's Empire works because Empire is the second film that coming off of these characters we built. If that had been an introductory film, uh, it would not have worked because we would not have understood what was going on. We would not be emotionally invested in any of these people's journeys. So Empire, the way Empire, and it's very risky storytelling, but it took that risk because it knew the character, the people were already invested in all of these people and their journeys. And it knew that when you ended where you ended it, the audience just sees that as a pause. Now they want to know the rest of the story, right? And that can only happen because you care about them in the first film. So the, the ending in mind, uh, you know, I've spoken to family members who've seen it in theaters and stuff, and they didn't realize there was going to be a third installment. How, how does the ending work as far as, for the audiences to still still enjoy it but there's so much left unsaid and unsolved mysteries and you know these riddles that haven't you know been put together yet why does empire's ending work and how does it play so well also into the return of the jedi as well well let's say let's say that history had gone differently let's say lucas had never created return of the jedi and that the the last movie's empire strikes back it would still remain one of the great movies of all time because what it does is it leaves you with this intense emotional longing for the rest. And because the nature of Star Wars is, like I said, I was making Star Wars movies with my action figures, right? If, if we waited 30 years and that if, hoping for another sequel and never came, we would still be telling those stories. We'd be filling in the gaps of what we thought these characters are going to do afterwards, right? Because the yeah. characters are so compelling. So that's, I mean, that's the major difference with, with, there's many differences, but that's one of the major differences with the ending of The Last Jedi is when I watched The Last Jedi and I was deeply, deeply disappointed and, and actually aggrieved by it, uh, the ending was, okay, I don't really care what happens next to these people. I don't really see what the story is. And there's no hook to make me want to create a story beyond it with where these people are and and had them you know in many ways that movie was written to be the last star wars movie i think perhaps that was even the intention of the director was to set up a movie that could not be surpassed in his mind uh and 
anything after that would be a clumsy effort to try to continue the narrative because the narrative had been concluded in, a, in my view in an unsatisfying way, but it had been concluded. Whereas the narrative, the hook of Empire Strikes Back is if you, even if you never hear the rest of it, you're gonna you're gonna come up with an infinite number of is possibilities as to where the story is going to go, and that that yeah. keeps the myth going. It's you know you, you're, there are stories you know after after Odysseus returns home in the Odyssey, there's still adventures ahead, right? But uh, but you know you can figure those out yourself. Yeah, very good way to put it. We we reference uh, that a lot here on the on the podcast since. Um, since we're moving into the sequels, I do want to bring up something real quick is um, the, the difference of uh, writing from all the different trilogies, prequel, mm-hmm. sequel, and original, but more specifically, uh, the difference of writing between J.J. Abrams and Ryan Johnson. They're vastly different. Uh, I'm like you, I didn't enjoy Last Jedi. Uh, I, there's nothing that speaks to me in that movie, but there is a huge difference of their writing styles, whether it was specifically to, you know, just steer away from each other or it's just their own personal ways of writing how are they how are the scripts for the sequels compared to other movies in general but also their collaboration together have you ever thought about about that at all or i mean well it to me the relationship of those scripts in the sequel trilogy is uh you know is an example of why this this was a poorly thought out thing because the difference in the original and even in the prequels is that there's one storyteller, even, even though George Lucas didn't write The Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, he's the grand producer of those movies, right? And he had excellent screenwriters that he knew his limits, at least he knew his limits then, right? And so, right. He said, okay, you know, and, and he had then hired wonderful screenwriters to take his vision and execute them. But the story was his idea. And, you know, and from what we understand is at least been thinking about it even before New Hope was even filmed. He'd been thinking about the arc of this journey for a long time. And you feel that. And uh, and I, like I said, I'm a big fan of the prequels as well. I think they're wonderful storytelling. I oh, good. To, Me too. I, I've come to appreciate episode one, which I didn't like the first time I saw it, but I've come to appreciate it since. Uh, and then then bring to this the, the Disney sequel trilogy. And, you know, it's, it's disjointed because you have multiple visions, multiple different styles, and clearly no one had an idea where this was going. I mean, the official rumor is, and I tend to believe this rumor, I think J.J. Abrams did have a plan for, I don't, I can't imagine that he would have just written his his movie and then left with no plan. I'm pretty sure, and I've heard that there was a, an extensive treatment that covered uh, two more films, and then, then Mr. Johnson decided, I don't want to do that, and he threw it all out, um, which I think was a mistake. Uh, and, you know, this was, the set. J.J. Abrams' style is a style that he also adopted from television, which is an unusual thing because he was, a, at the initial origins of his career, he was a very, very innovative and creative storyteller. His very first movie was regarding Henry, if you remember that, with Harrison Ford. With Harrison, yeah, that was great. I yeah, love that. And he was 19 when he wrote it, right? And so, Oh, really? Like, yeah, Mr. Abrams, you know, he wasn't like me that bumbled into this with no connections. He came from a very successful, his father was a very successful producer. He was already sort of Hollywood royalty within that world. And so he, I'm sure he was able to get his script to the right people that got it to Harrison Ford and he made it happen, right? And so at 19, it's not that easy to get a script made with Harrison Ford. He had the right connections, but he had a solid script. It was, it's a good movie. And uh, it was an innovative and creative movie and really character driven, right? Uh, then after that, he starts doing his TV shows like Felicity and then Alias or whatever. And I don't know what happened in, in the course of that time, but he went from being an, a, an innovative filmmaker to someone who became a brilliant mimic. For whatever reason, maybe he just didn't have the confidence. I mean, I'm saying this. I mean, the, the, this man is much more successful than I am, but I'm just speaking as, a, as an objective sort of observer of it, which mm-hmm. is maybe he, he didn't have the confidence within himself that he should have had, considering that he wrote really wonderful stuff that was innovative very early in his life. But he very quickly sort of devolved into, I'm just going to do what's been done. And, you know, if you watch Alias, which I enjoyed very much as a series, the, the pilot of Alias is essentially Run, Lola, Run. I mean, even, I mean, they take, they, they take entire sequences from that film and they even have you know, Sidney Bristow with the, with the wig from Run, 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 Lola, Run. I mean, it's an entire homage to that. And so that once that happened, it became more and more of a pattern such that he began to rely more and more on mimicry of other people, which is unfortunate. And that happened, that happened in the Star Trek world that he went into. And then when he went into Star Wars, again, mimicry of, of, um, of A New Hope, which is why that was the first Star Wars film that I did not go see multiple times in the theater. I went in, I was very excited, and I came out of there. I, didn't, I wasn't upset as I was during The Last Jedi. I came out of there a little deflated, saying, okay, that was entertaining, but I feel like nothing's new. And I feel like it's a step backwards. Because what George Lucas always said is, my movies have to keep progressing the mythology of this universe forward. 
and this felt like a step backwards. I felt like I knew less about the force. I knew less about, about the world than I did before. Uh, and so that was because it was an, it was an intentional mimic of, uh, of, of New Hope. And then you have The Last Jedi, which is an intentional rebellion against the entire franchise, in my opinion. Uh, and, it, and it's coming from, uh, in my view, an ideological and a political place. Um, and uh, which is fine because George Lucas had ideologies and politics, but this was a, an ideology against the franchise itself. And that it was an, against the perception of the franchise as in my view, I believe it's motivated by the desire to undermine Luke Skywalker as a white male, which had become a little bit of the narrative in Hollywood at the time. You know, Mr. Trump had just been elected. And, and so a lot of the, the sort of standard narrative in my industry was the evil white male. And so that had become what people said at cocktail parties. So suddenly let's use the most important franchise in the history of Hollywood to get across this thing we're all talking about at cocktail parties. Well, there's one thing about talking about uh, hot air cocktail parties in, in, you know, in Hollywood, and there's another thing actually trying to sell that to a global audience, and, and it didn't work in my view. I, I agree with a lot you said about, about JJ and Ryan. Well, considering episode nine after the events of The Force Awakens and Last Jedi, do you think episode nine, regardless of what director had came in or what screenwriter, was that movie always going to be... Uh, you know, was that one of the hardest screenplays to write, in your opinion? Like, because considering the two that came before it, and how how could it have been a good story? Like, how do you come from that? Well, you see, I could not have solved the problem. I could not have solved where do you go from here. Had I been called in for a meeting with Lucasfilm, I would have been flabbergasted. I wouldn't know how to to resolve this in any way that is fulfilling. But what's remarkable is this, and I think JJ did his best, essentially, to try to eliminate that previous movie, which which didn't satisfy fans of that previous movie and didn't satisfy people that were unhappy with that movie. And so he did yeah. his thing that that's the best I could do. Um, and I, I think that's about the best anybody, most people could have done. But then I was startled. Uh, last year, a friend of mine slipped me Colin, Colin Trevorrow's uh, script, the unfilmed version of episode. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Yeah. I read it. A friend of mine who's close with Mr. Trevorrow's working with him said, I want you to read this. So I was like, sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll read this. Uh, and, and I read it. And I was utterly blown away because from page one, it was an absolute page turner. I felt like from page one that I was in a Star Wars movie. My heart was racing as I read the script. And the amazing thing about what Mr. Trevor and, and his, and his co-writer on that did was he took, he just accepted where the world had been left at the end of Last Jedi and went with it. He, he didn't try to alter it. He didn't try to go back and, well, that's not really what happened as they tried to do in, episode, in the official film for episode nine. He literally said, okay, that's, those are the cards I've been dealt and I'm going to make it work. And he made it work. And what was amazing is he took the many failings of that film and turned them into victories. For example, the, the, Rose Tico was a character that I thought was very poorly developed in Last Jedi and was a character in my view, I'm gonna be as straight as this. I thought it was degrading to give this character to Kelly Marie Tran, who's a wonderful actress and she was forced to play this, this role that I thought was very poorly written. And then in Colin Trevorrow's uh, Duel of the Fates, she becomes the most interesting character. Rose Tico, just building off where they left in the last movie, he goes, okay, well, I'm going to take that character. I'm going to put her on this journey. I'm going to make her a spy that infiltrates the First Order. And essentially, she becomes one of the pivotal factors that brings down the First Order in his version of the movie. And literally, as I'm going through this, I'm like, let's get back to Rose. Let's get back to Rose. I want see what's happening with Rose. Because they left her on a cliffhanger. Every scene where Rose would appear, she would end up in, a, in this Penelope, you know, peril situation where you're like, I want to have her next. Let's go back. I'll forget her too. I want to go back to her. That's brilliant screenwriting to take a character that was hated. Yeah. You know, and make that the most compelling character. That's someone who loves Star Wars. And and all the arcs that were not that were set up by JJ, and then ultimately he didn't even bother to fix them because he was so flabbergasted in trying to fix the last Jedi. He just left his own arcs unfulfilled. You know, there, there's the arc of Finn in 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 Trevor's unfilmed script. Finn leads a, a major stormtrooper rebellion. You see him convinced. I thought that was perfect for his character. All of the characters complete the journey, and then you have a place where ultimately Ray gets to, you know, the, the criticism of both films of Ray was that she was this Mary Sue, which she was. And in the Trevor's movie, you know, she fails. She fails a lot in that movie. And, and you know, and Kylo Ren is not an idiot. He learned from his mistakes and he's he one-ups her multiple times. And finally, at the end of that script, she's catastrophically injured. She's blinded. He blinds her with a lightsaber. She loses her eyes and she still fights on. And 
then you really have this compelling character that's essentially been blinded in a lightsaber battle and still manages to triumph. Then you really cared for her character. So it, it, the, he showed me that you could make that work with the setup that Ryan Johnson gave him. And regrettably, the politics of Lucasfilm never allowed that film to be made. Yeah, so why, I was going to ask, why do you think you know, Colin left the project? I know they say creative differences and all, and the whole Leia thing would have had to be rewritten, but um, it, generally speaking, you know, is there more to that, do you believe? Than- yeah, I mean, again, I'm speaking from what I've heard from friends who know him. I do not know the gentleman myself. So but the friends that I know him who, who are working with him, the people that slipped me the script, right? They're of the view that he, that he was ousted for a variety of reasons. One is, one is you know, Lucasfilm under Ms. Kennedy's leadership has always been about the shiny new thing that they can brag about in press releases. So when Mr. Trevorrow was getting a lot of attention as this young new director, right, and, you know, doing, doing uh, Jurassic World, he was the shiny new thing. And then he had a Book of Henry, a movie he did that did not work and was very poorly received. So suddenly he went from the shiny thing to, you know, this tarnished luster. So that's a problem when you just want to hold up and say, we always have the best. We have the best. We have the most up and coming young people. That's a problem. And Okay, then- so kind of like what happened with the Game of Thrones writers. Correct. Yes, the ending wasn't well received, and so they kind of and went so, their separate ways. But the difference is this: the nobody really knew or cared. Book the one benefit is no one really watched the Book of Henry, right? So, so the, <laughs> people didn't associate Colin Trevorrow as a failure, right? It really wasn't in the general consciousness of the audience. Certainly not of the Star Wars fans. Nobody was thinking. People were high on him coming in because he was doing a good job in Jurassic World, right? Yeah. And so, so this was just the internal politics of I need to have someone that's at the top of their game, at least in the trades and variety and deadline. I don't need any negative headlines, right? That's one. And then there is, from what I understand, there was, you know, he had the courage to say to Ryan Johnson and Captain Kennedy, I, I think we should save Luke. You, you know, I don't think, I think you, you, you hamstrung us. And they told him no, but that created, that created a bitter feeling because the culture, from what I understand, of Lucasfilm has been a, had been a place, and probably changed a bit now, but had been a place where you could not question uh, the, the people in charge and Ms. Kennedy and her vision as it was unfolding the last Jedi to become almost like a religion there. And so when he questioned it, he became an enemy. And so that had already poisoned it. And he went along with it. The script that I read was probably version two or three. The original version that he wrote was Luke Skywalker on his adventure with Rey. And he's like, oh, that's what I've got. They're like, well, you have to rewrite that. So the version that I read was Luke Skywalker as a force ghost. And he's a very compelling force ghost in this one, right? He's a very major player in the movie as a force ghost. And so he still made it work. And I guess that probably irritated them because Luke Skywalker is still a heroic figure as a force ghost. He's quite active. And uh, so that probably increased the irritation that he wasn't playing along. He kept <laughs> Luke back. And so that's there. And, uh, you know, I, seeing what he did with that draft, I'm sure that he could have easily resolved the death of, uh, you know, of Carrie Fisher and made it work somehow because he's proven that he understands how to tell that story, even without Luke as an active figure. He solved that problem. Take away Leia, he can solve that problem. They didn't give him the opportunity. They just decided, you know, he's not the guy we want for this. And also the political pressures of Disney was, you know, I'm sure Bob Iger was like, hey, why am I getting all this backlash from this movie? You told me this movie is going to make $2.3 billion. Why is it making $1.3 billion? What's happening here? All right, bring back the guy we know made it work. And I'm sure there was that call, and and that he falls. Let's just bring back the guy we that everyone knows made it made a decent right. movie last time. So those are the political things. I'm sure it was a combination of of that and actual dislike of him for the choices he was making in, internally at, in an environment where people were not allowed to be themselves. And apparently, that remains true to what Lucasfilm is today. Uh, that leads me to one of my last questions: is um, when you're in a writer's room or when you're writing a story and collaborating with other people. Uh, do you think it's healthy to have differing opinions and kind of headbutting going on from time to time? And how easy is it to work with other writers um, as opposed to just writing something by yourself? Well, you know, I've run writers' rooms. I ran the Tron writers' room at the Tron Uprising. I, I you know, and uh, and I've actually run writers' rooms in in China and in France. I was, I've brought those. Oh, very cool. Yeah, you know, in China, I was asked to. I worked on that show Nikita. I was asked to do sort of a female spy show in in Beijing, which I developed there. Uh, with Chinese writers that work with translators. The whole writers who had to translate the entire time while I was there. Uh, and then I've done that in Canal Plus in France uh, as well. So I've run multiple writers' rooms. And, uh, and I, I think I've worked, and I've worked both as the head writer and as the writer working for somebody else multiple times, right? And these environments where I've worked for another showrunner that have not been successful have always been environments where, uh, where the showrunner doesn't have a clear vision of what they want. 
there, I mean, unfortunately, there's a lot of people as right. I mean, we're, we're all artists, we're all a little crazy, but there's a lot of people that are, you know, in, in currently in the industry who are advancing, who have adopted this strange new paradigm of just make it up as you go along, right? Which is maybe arguably the J.J. Abrams paradigm from the law. <laughs> right. And that's become sort of the thing. And that's not how I do things. I walk in, I, I know exactly where I'm going to end the season one, and I know we're going to end season five before I start anything. I plotted that out. Right. And it has to make sense. And so whenever I've run a sh any kind of writer's room or show, I always have a plan. And then you have bright writers who help you tweak that plan. But I've never moved the goalposts. I know exactly where I need to get the characters because I wouldn't start without knowing it. And then the details of how you make, bake that cake are the hopefully your brilliant writing team is going to really make it better than you could do it alone. But the environments where I've worked in uh, and I've worked in multiple environments where the, the show owners like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. So what happens next episode? I mean, like, what are we gonna do for the end of the season? I've worked in those environments and it's always a disaster. It is every single time. And some of those shows have been successful despite that. Like people don't know how the hot dog got made, right? They just go <laughs> right. And so other shows have not been successful because you can see it on the screen, the chaos, right? And so I believe that, that that's not just poor screenwriting, that's poor management. And unfortunately it's, a, it's management that's been rewarded a lot in the last uh, 20 years that I've been there. Uh, I've watched a lot of people get ahead with that kind of uh, make it up as you go along. They're very good salespeople. They know how to sell themselves to executives. And I'm like, I'm a creative visionary genius. And then, and then disaster strikes. I mean, my understanding for the Star Trek Discovery series, um, they had, you know, there's some brilliant, brilliant filmmakers at the beginning who, you know, spent about a year trying to figure out what they're going to do and it didn't quite work out, right? And rather than coming in with a plan. So, and now they're continuing to make it up as they go along. And a lot of people are not happy with that. So. I, I could listen to you talk all day, man. I could talk all day with you. I, I love hearing your insights. Um, before we before we do close out, I just want to know your thoughts on current Star Wars, future Star Wars, where you see it going with their storytelling. Do you think they're creatively bankrupt? Do you think they're going into uh, a territory that might not be appeasing to all fans or you're excited about it? Uh, just whatever your thoughts are on you know the future of this franchise. Well, you know, I said I was deeply disappointed and kind of broken as a fan by The Last Jedi. I refused to watch Solo. I didn't watch episode nine. I mean, I know more. I, I oh, know, you didn't? Oh, I okay. I thought I you did. No, 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 no. I, I, I know all about episode nine because I've read the entire <laughs> plot multiple times on online and debated it and discussed it, right? But I wouldn't yeah. go watch it in theater. So I mean, so I know, I feel like I know that movie scene by scene without having seen it in the theater, right? Uh, but uh, but yeah, I mean, but that was literally my personal boycott. I was hurt by the film. I said, you know, I, don't, I, I these people don't know what they're doing and they're injuring my own memories of my childhood. I don't want to go down this road any further. Uh, and then, and I refused to watch The Mandalorian initially. I, I didn't, I actually refused to subscribe to Disney Plus until a few weeks ago I heard, you know, as we all did, that Luke Skywalker had returned in this very respectful, you know, heroic way. And then the yeah. next day I subscribed to Disney Plus. Over the next few days I've been- Oh, wow. Yeah, so I just watched Mandalorian for the first time like two weeks ago, right? No uh, way. That's yeah. Wow. Okay. And, and I liked it. And I really liked it. I really liked it. You know, uh, I, I thought it was a really heartfelt effort to return to the origin of Star Wars. And I think it was successful. Uh, and, uh, you know, there have been people who are criticizing, oh, I would have done that different with episode three. I'm like, stop. After, after what <laughs> right. we said, this is a really good, heartfelt, fan loving return to the show. Uh, and so I was very excited. And I was excited for the Book of Boba Fett. I was excited for all these things that are coming out of Ahsoka and, uh, and the Ranger show. And then the current political situation with Ms. Gina Carano happened, right? And I'm, I'm friendly with Gina Carano. You know, she's been gracious enough to follow me on, on Twitter. We've had- Oh, very few, cool. Yeah, we've had a few DMs. She's a very kind, very gracious, very, very elegant woman, right? Uh, very dignified. And so, it, you know, I, I can't call her a, a close friend because I've never met her, but we've had a few exchanges and she's always been very, very gracious to me. So it hurt me very deeply to watch what was happening. And then- to, I understood what she was saying in the, in the post that some people attacked her for. I understood what she was saying. I also understood that the topic that she wrote uh, that she wrote about is a topic that Hollywood considers a red line that you can't talk about. I mean, unfairly, I think you have to be able to talk about even that historical period of World War II and to take whatever lessons you can from it. But in Hollywood, everyone is ready to jump down your throat when you bring it up, you know, the Hitler analogies or the Holocaust analogies or whatever they want to claim you, they think you're saying. And so she was forced out. Uh, which was something I believe Miss Kennedy had wanted for a long time. And she gave, you know, she found, okay, this is the thing. I know the Hollywood's not going to back her on, right? And then, and, and they didn't. Holly, her agents dropped her and it was very, very, very regretful what happened. So this is what I did. When I heard about that, that night I unsubscribed to Disney Plus. I unsubscribed to Disney Plus this week, right? And I won't be going back. 
you know, for me, for me, and I'm only speaking for myself, for me, uh, despite Jean Favreau's in clear, incredible love for this franchise, he's a fan. It's from the heart. I can see he's a fan. I can't, I can't go through this heartbreak anymore. I can't go through this nonsense of the, the politically correct culture constantly intervening. I, I understand you know, that. And there's a lot of, in my view, ugly-minded people in Lucasfilm that are trying to sabotage the good things that John Favreau is doing because of their own agendas. And as long as a house divided itself against itself cannot stand, right? Uh, I think Jesus said that, and Abraham Lincoln said that, and they're both right, okay? And that's, that's what we're, we're facing. And I, don't, I just think that this event is going to become a black swan event. I don't know that Star Wars is going to survive this. I honestly don't. I know I'm out. Uh, unless Ms. Carano is brought back with an apology, that even that, in my view, is not enough. Personally, I think the moment has come where Disney has to decide. Right now, they've allowed two factions that hate each other to sit inside of Lucasfilm sabotaging each other. This is a game of, of mutual sabotage, right? That's not sustainable. And this is the black swan moment where you have to make a choice. At the moment, it looks like they've, they've decided to go with a politically correct PR-favored uh, faction, but that's not the faction that brings in money or the fans. And so if that's the case, then the fans are going to leave. Uh, and uh, and so I think Mr. Iger and Mr. Chapek have to decide if they actually want to make money on this or not. They will begin to make money again. And um, there is some talk, you know, brought, you know, YouTubers like Doomcock are hearing rumors. There's talk of, of bringing Gina Carano back. I don't know that she would accept it after the way she was treated. I think the solution is the one that everyone is afraid to do inside of Hollywood. I think the solution is to end the Kathleen Kennedy uh, faction. It's to have her retire and to shut down the High Republic and all this other stuff that nobody really wants. Nobody wants that. That's just done for PR purposes to satisfy a particular element in the media, not even any element of the fan base. And so uh, I think you have to close that down and give Favreau uh, and Filoni complete control of Lucasfilm and shut down any non-performing projects that are there for political purposes. That is the only solution to save Star Wars would Mr. Iger and Mr. Chapek have the courage to do that? They may not until they see the returns. If John Favreau continues down the current path he's on and makes these, what I believe will probably be wonderful shows and people aren't watching them and they're not buying the merchandise anymore, then I think Star Wars is finished. And I think that's the path we're currently on. Yeah, when you when you messaged me before we came on and you know said how you were kind of you know done with Star Wars and stuff, I was really sad, but also very very grateful that you still considered coming on and you know talking a little bit with us today. I'm not um, done with Lucas Star Wars. George Lucas' Star Wars will be I see. part of okay. my soul forever. And that will all be, and that includes the extended universe. That and I, uh, you know, I don't call it legends. Like to me, the original Thrawn is Thrawn, right? <laughs> you oh, know, right. You know, and uh, and so I will always be love the universe that Lucas created, and I believe that is an archetype. Like I said, people are going to be watching his movies centuries from now and discussing them and learning from them. Uh, I'm done with this effort by Disney to create a simulacrum. That's what I'm done with. And unless the uh, Kennedy faction is is closed down, I don't think there, I think the industry will be done with a simulacrum eventually. Well, I mean, regardless, either way, I, I want to thank you so much for coming on this show anyway, and giving us your thoughts and opinions and, you know, hopefully influence some other people out there about, you know, if they're ambitious about becoming a screenwriter or just they learn something today. As far as where people can find you and everything you got going on in this world, do you want to plug your social media and any other shows you might be coming on, et cetera? Sure. Well, my social media, my Twitter is just my name, Cameron Pasha, K-A-M-R-A-N-P-A-S-H-A. That's also my website where you can you know, see some of the blogs I've written. I used to write regularly for the Huffington Post. A lot of my blogs are up there. They deal a lot with politics in the Middle East and some other stuff that you might find interesting. Uh, you can purchase my novels through there. And my, you know, like I said, my two novels are, for those who are watching on the screen, here's one, one of them. It's Mother of the Believers. That's the one about the birth of Islam from Muhammad's wife's perspective. And this is the one on the Epic on the Crusades, Shadow of the Swords. And uh, they're both available. Beautiful covers too. Yeah, they're lovely. I, I, you know, I had these. I was very blessed with the, uh, with the, uh, with the artists. You know, the wonderful thing is, I told. That's the difference you, you feel. You know, you, as a screenwriter in television, you actually have power, but as a movie screenwriter, you have no power. But in as a novelist, you have tremendous power. When when the, when Simon Schuster bought these books, you know, when it came time for publication, they had me come in in New York and meet with the design team and say, well, what what, what do I what do I want to what I want on the cover. And I told them the cover and they, they drew it and they drew a better wow. version than I imagined. But it was like, well, sir, what, what would you like on your cover of your book? I said, this is what I'd like. And they did it, right? And so, uh, and so that 
the book and hopefully the books are more than just the lovely covers. They're actually, I think, <laughs> of course they are. People, people can check them out. And uh, yeah, and like I say, you mentioned my YouTube channel, Cameron Pasha 72, where I have my film Miriam and I also have a little teaser for a horror film that I've been working on uh, that's up there. And uh, yeah, so you, you, can, you can follow me there. And, uh, you know, you follow me on Twitter. Uh, I'm very open about myself on every level. You know, Hollywood is all about hypocrisy and creating fake images. Uh, which people like Ms. Carano don't do, which can be a lightning rod. I'm also a little bit like that. So I'll share my beliefs on religion, politics, UFOs, Bigfoots. I like to post pictures of lovely ladies. Some people go, well, you posted all these profound philosophical things and you have this beautiful girl come by. I was like, yeah, I like <laughs> Is there something wrong with that? So, so I have full range of my personalities available there. And some of it you'll like, some of it you won't like, but you know, please engage. Well, that's fantastic. Guys, go check it in the links of the description of this podcast and on the video format too. They are linked below. Check them out. It's always fun to check out other people's creative endeavors and it helps inspire you as well. And uh, Cameron Pasha is definitely one of them. Again, thank you, sir, for being here. And, uh, you know, I'm glad we got the chance to meet. Hopefully we could like do it again some other time. And for everyone else out there, we, would be, be, we will be back on Friday for the WandaVision after show on the podcast and back live Monday where you can come and chat with us there. So thank you so much for watching. And now somehow, some way, somewhere this week, may the force be with you.